Wisdom without eloquence does too little, Cicero said. It is not enough to have something to say. One must say it in the right way, Aristotle said. But the gospel must be preached, Jesus said. Woe to me if I do not preach it, Paul said. The word of God is upon me like fire shut up in my bones, Dr. King said, quoting Jeremiah, prophet following prophet. These are enduring truths. The gospel of Jesus is an enduring proclamation. To preach it is an enduring mandate that God would speak, still speak to us, still true today. And the media is the same. Mystical, mysterious, musical, sacramental, human. Perhaps since that priest Melchizedek, since those mysterious angelic visitors to Sarah and Abraham, the captain of the armies of God standing before Joshua, since the prophets, since John the Baptist, the apostles, since Paul, that has been how God speaks to us by means of the human voice. Plainly, because we're human, we live on spoken and sung words. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, whoever listens to you, listens to me. It's why Benedict and his rule for monks could teach the monks that they should obey the command of the abbot as if it's the command of God himself. But, but we've, we've forgotten this truth. We've become distracted by other media tricked by technology into thinking we can draw near to God in a better way. John Moskos is, is an ancient chronicler, was, I should say. He tells of an ancient story from the Egyptian desert of the devil one night passing out gardening tools to the monks until one of the monks stops and says, what, what are you doing? What are these? I am giving the brethren a distraction, the devil said, to make them less zealous in glorifying God. Marshall McLuhan, that great thinker of communication, he said once that the greatest enemy to the Latin mass was not the culture of progressivism or liberalism or any other ism you can think of. Rather, it was the victim of the microphone, he said. The victim of the microphone. The point is, it is through the primeval medium of the human voice that God has always spoken to us. The unscreened voice. Or what McLuhan called the common measures of speech. 
Think, think of the very beginning of the rule of St. Benedict. Listen carefully, my son, to the master's instructions. Attend to them with the ears of your heart. This is advice from a father who loves you. That is not data. That is not a push notification. That is something else. It's the human voice as human affection. And, and this is the deeper thing at stake when I talk about the crisis of bad preaching. Now, the whole reason I'm here talking to you is because a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called The Crisis of Bad Preaching. I am not a professional homiletician. I am not credentialed. I just happen to preach every day. I've been preaching for 20 years. I grew up around good preaching. I'm passionate about it. I think it matters. I think it matters for the kingdom of God, which is why I raised my hand, which is why I wrote a book about it. And I did not write about the crisis of okay preaching. <laughs> I did not write about the crisis of somewhat decent preaching. But of, but of bad preaching. I wrote about the crisis of bad preaching. And the crisis is not about declining numbers or, or denominational defection or secularism or anything like that. It is about the fact that God has for so long spoken to us by means of the human voice, by the unscreened voice, and we've forgotten that a little. And so my plea to you is, is simple. Brothers and sisters, we need preachers. We still do. You need a preacher, I need a preacher. Preaching remains a medium of grace and truth. And so, that means we preachers, we must preach better. We must preach better. Period. And, and, and to do so, first, we, we must take preparing for preaching more seriously than we do. Hugh of St. Cher is one of the ancient Dominicans, and I love the way he put it. He said, first, the bow has to be bent in study, and the arrow released in preaching. Phillips Brooks, great American Protestant preacher, a great uh, mentor of mine intellectually, he said, do not be tempted by the fascination of spontaneousness. Do not be misled by the delusion of inspiration. Martin Luther King Jr., it is said, spent 15 hours in preparation for each sermon he delivered. Walter Burkhart, the great teacher of Catholic preaching, he said he spent four hours of work on every one minute of his homily. Now, I don't know if I believe that, to be honest. <laughs> but is that what preparation looks like? It will look different for each preacher, because each preacher is different. The point is, preachers must take preparation seriously. We must 
really, really prepare. We must avoid what I call the I've got this assumption. If your preparation consists in you saying to yourself, I've got this, let me tell you, you do not got this. <laughs> I don't care if you're a cardinal or a newly minted deacon. And preparation looks like old-fashioned formation, as Aristotle said long ago, old-fashioned formation in logos, ethos, and pathos. Logos is the word. Aristotle called, called it the argument by which we show truth. For we Christians, that obviously is the word of God, God the word. The Second Vatican Council said that the homily should be nourished and, and ruled, governed by sacred scripture. The preacher must be shaped in his ethos, his ethos, it's his character. It's what makes him believable, his authenticity, and it's manifest in his, his wisdom and his virtue and his goodwill toward his listeners. It, it, it involves his intellectual formation, his experience. And for the Christian preacher, the ethos of the Christian preacher must also be ecclesiastical, thoroughly. You see, because as a preacher, the gospel the preacher preaches is not his own. Rather, it's Christ's, and he gave it to the church for the church to proclaim. And so as a preacher, my job is to welcome you into the communion of the church, not the communion of me. That's why the preacher's ethos must be ecclesiastical, not egotistical. And then pathos, that, that, the, these, are, these are the emotions. These are the emotions of the listener. To be aware of them, to, to respect them, to know how to engage them, not twist them. To pay attention, that's what Simone Weil, that's the way she put it, everything's about paying attention. You pay attention to, to, to scripture, to, to liturgy, to the liturgical texts but also to the world and to, to the community. Did your team just win the Super Bowl or was there a mass shooting? That should matter to the preacher. And the preacher must also pay attention to himself. Is he afraid? Is he struggling? We must prepare. We must be serious about our preparation. But you have a part to play too. Preachers must preach better. Listeners must listen better. Plutarch said that learning how to listen was like playing catch. Uh, throwing and catching happen at the same time. We're in this together. If you look at Scripture and tradition, it is plain. Think, think of Jesus preaching the parable of the sower, especially as Mark tells it. There he is in the boat with his disciples, his listeners on the shore. And again, as, as Mark tells it, the first word out of Jesus' mouth, listen. Listen. Imagine if your preacher on Sunday morning, the first thing he said was listen. If you open up the Roman Missal and you look at the instructions for the liturgy, the word, the rubric there, it's very simple. It just says sit and listen. Sit and listen. In, in my book, I 
right, about 10 steps, 10 rules for how to listen to a homily. You, you read the scriptures in advance. You pray for your preacher. You expect the Holy Spirit to speak. You sit in your pew or your chair, and you struggle to listen to the preacher. You, you listen for, for what comforts you. You listen for what challenges you. You, you, you stop complaining about how long the homily is. Just quit that. <laughs> you take it all back to prayer. You, you, you talk about it in spiritual friendship with others, and you do that week in and week out in communion with your preacher and not in criticism of your preacher. Because the listener has spiritual work to do too. And there's a lot of work to do. Paul said once, he said, said, he asked, how will they hear if there's no one to preach? But that suggests another question. How well do we hear? How well do we hear? Are we ready for the great preaching which God may suddenly give us? Because, Because that's how it very well may come about, better preaching, as a sudden gift from God. If the Bible is anything to go by, that is exactly how it's going to come about, not by any programs or gimmicks or data sets or focus groups, but by Pentecost. By Pentecost. When, like the apostles or like St. Philip Neri, we preachers finally breathe fire again. But as I said, it takes, takes all of us. You too. Both the preacher and those who listen to preaching, if both of us are willing to risk to get a little closer to the fire, speaking fire, hearing fire, the fire of the Word of God ablaze in our hearts. This can happen. This totally can happen. I'm convinced of it. Because I know the world has not heard its best preaching yet. I know it. Like, 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 a, like a prophet on fire. Yeah.